with me. I'm going to read our passage this morning out of 2 Kings 2. We'll be in verses 23 through 25. 2 Kings 2. Elisha went up from Jericho to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go on up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <laughs> I, I t- <laughs> we don't usually laugh after the reading of the passage here. But I take it that you're somewhat shocked by this choice. And I'll just say to you, Jeff leaves for the summer. You're left with a guest preacher, and this is what you get. So maybe Jeff should come on back. Um, When I was in high school, I had a classmate who for his senior yearbook photo, you get a chance to pull a little quote at the bottom. And so this guy chose as his senior quote a citation to this passage and then a note that said, read it, it's funny. Now, I know that actually the reason we laughed is because it's shocking. Um, First thing, if you're in high school here and you have not yet submitted your senior quote, be careful. You may end up a sermon illustration someday. You don't want that. But listen, when I read that, when I read his senior quote and I looked at the passage, to be really honest, I didn't think it was funny at all. And I don't think this passage is at all funny today. I mean, I laugh with you because it's shocking and surprising, but But when we read it soberly, it's actually not funny. It's horrifying. This is a horrifying account. I'm appalled by it. Now, when I read it, the first thing that strikes me is that this passage is unreasonable, unfair, and unjust. And it causes me to ask the question, my God, why would you do this? Why would you do this? This story is about a prophet of God traveling from one place to another. He's surrounded by a group of youth who mock him. He calls down a curse, and the judgment of God is released on them in the form of bears who maul them. What? I mean, is this, is this, this is really in the Bible? You should flip there if you don't believe. Like, this is actually there. Why, God? What is this about? And here's the deal. I am by nature a skeptic. I am highly analytical. Uh, my wife would say that on my worst days, I'm more like a robot than a person. She, she's an artist. She sees everything to her looks like clouds and colors and beauty, and everything to me looks like grid paper and bar graphs. I'm just unfeeling, uncaring, let me assess the world. So if I say something insensitive to you, know that it's, it's just because I'm in my robot space, right? I mean, just, I'm analytical. I know that some of you are like that. I know that there's some skeptics in here. I know that some of you are doubters. I hope, actually, that some of you this morning have come in here. You don't even identify as a Christian. You may identify as an atheist or agnostic or perhaps part of a different faith tradition. Maybe you're just exploring world religions. Uh, And I hope that you feel safe and comfortable here. In fact, you should feel safe because not only are you welcome here, sometimes they even ask skeptics to preach. And so very much welcome to come in with those objections and questions. And I have to tell you that because I'm a skeptical Christian, I identify sometimes most with doubters. I've been a Christian for 21 years. 18 of those 21 years, I have profoundly struggled with doubt and skepticism. In year three of my faith, I had had basically three years of no doubt. And then I went through a season of doubt I've shared before where I was so riddled 
with doubt that when I would sit open, when I would sit over the open Bible in the morning in my dorm room reading, sometimes I was just gripped and I would weep. I couldn't even read two verses before I would just start weeping. That's how intense this experience was. And when that first happened, I thought, well, this is just a season of doubt. And now 18 years later, actually what I realized is I had a three-year season of no doubt. And then this is actually just my regular life. And I know that some of you relate to that. But even if you're not the kind of skeptic that I am, even if your mind doesn't work exactly that same way, you don't have these same struggles, you may have the gift of faith, and you may be able to read passages like 2 Kings 2, and it doesn't, it doesn't really create a crisis for you. But even you, maybe there are, there are times in your life where you experience tragedy, or you see things that are horrible. Maybe you see young immigrant children being put into holding cages on our border, and you go, God, is this, are you, are you real? Are you, are you in control of this thing? What's happening? I certainly asked that question. Now, I want to be clear, because I, I sense a growing nervousness here. I want to be clear. I am all in on Jesus. I believe the biblical resurrection claims, and I therefore worship the God of the Bible. Uh, I have built my whole life around the claim of Christ's resurrection. And yet, because I'm not just a Christian, but a skeptical Christian, like I said, I relate to doubters. And so when I read the Bible, and I come across people like Thomas, maybe the the most uh, famous doubter in the Bible, remember that Christ had risen from the dead, and he's moving about Jerusalem, interacting with disciples and others. And Thomas, this apostle, this disciple, is told by his friends, hey, Jesus is risen. And he goes, unless I can put my fingers in the wounds on his hand, and unless I can feel his side where the spear ran him through, I will never believe. And I read that and I go, that might have been my response too. Or Mark 9, 24. This is the guy that I probably relate to more than anyone else in the whole Bible. This is a father who has a child who's sick. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, can you heal my child? And Jesus responds, he says, all things are possible for those who believe. And you remember his response? He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's me. That's where I live. Matthew 28, 16, right before the Great Commission, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, before Jesus ascends to heaven and sends his church out on mission. Verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I suspect that I might have been in that group. Now as a doubter, as a natural skeptic, as someone who struggles with hard passages like 2 Kings 2, I do take some comfort knowing that I'm still in good company. Uh, the great C.S. Lewis, who is often quoted here, uh, he wrote in some personal correspondence to a friend. He said, I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. Often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. You ever feel that way? Oz Guinness, another uh, great Christian author and scholar of Irish descent, he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which Christians are inclined to fall when thinking about doubt. On the one hand, to be too hard, and on the other, to be too soft. But he says, doubt is not the same as unbelief, so it is not the opposite of faith. Rather, it is a state of mind and suspension between faith and unbelief. So though I believe in Jesus and I love him and I worship him, I often live in this in-between space, assailed by doubt. When I read passages like the one we read this morning, I think to myself, really? What am I supposed to do with this? With this, with this seemingly capricious, violent God who sends bears to attack children? 
Should I believe this story? Is this actually the word of God? Is this actually true? And if so, what, what, how do I reconcile this to my understanding of God and, and my place in the world? Now, as I ask these questions, <clears throat> I think about something I learned back in fifth grade. You remember in fifth grade when you first started studying math and, and they introduced the order of operations? You remember the order of operations? If you get some arithmetic, if you get a, a problem and you try to solve it just moving left to right like you would read a sentence, you're going to get the wrong answer. Because this problem isn't solved left to right. There's an order of operations where you have to deal with exponents first and then multiplication and then parentheses. And if you do it in the right order, you're going to get 160. That's the answer to that problem. If you move left to right, you're going to get something else. And so you have to attend to the order of operations. Maybe you haven't thought about fifth grade math in a long time. How about assembling Ikea furniture? Have you done that more recently? <laughs> if you get Ikea furniture and you lay it out, and you begin to put it together. Now, if you get overconfident and you say, oh, yeah, 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 I see where this is headed. I see where we're going. And you set aside the directions and you veer from the order of operations, God help you. Don't stray from the sequential diagram that was expertly drafted by Swedish engineers. They are going to get you to the promised land. If you go out on your own and you start tightening the lock nuts before you put in the dowel pegs, friend, your, your bookshelf is going to list. It's going to look like Picasso designed it. Don't do that. You have to attend to the order of operations. And I think the same thing holds true when we consider the Christian faith. When we analyze and assess the claims of the Bible, when we deal with hard passages in the Bible, when we try to understand tragedy and hard things happening in the world, we have to attend to the order of operations. And I would suggest that we don't try to understand Jesus in light of hard Old Testament passages, but rather we try to understand hard Old Testament passages in light of Jesus. Jesus is the center. We have to start there. So in other words, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. And we have to view everything in light of the resurrection. On the other hand, if the resurrection is not true, we need not give it any more time or thought. We simply disregard it or run away from it. Our culture, though, often wants to assess the claims of the Bible and assess the Christian faith from the outside in. They want to look first at the peripheral issues and attempt to try to understand and assess the truth of Jesus. And I would suggest that that's the wrong order. I had a friend growing up through junior high and high school, kind of grew up in the same church environment. He professed faith as an adolescent, went off to college and decided, you know what, I actually don't believe this. So fast forward a decade, we're 30, 31. He actually works at the university where I was attending law school and we would have lunch and we would often talk about faith and he would bring each time questions and objections that dealt with what I will call peripheral issues, uh, hot button social topics, things that he was uncomfortable with that the Bible seemed to take a position that opposed his opinion or his view. And he would want to camp out on those issues. And I would say each time, listen man, you've got to first settle the question of the resurrection before assessing these things matters at all. You've got to attend to the order of operations. And I would say that Jesus is at the center of that. Now we have four kids now, and so we try to carve out time for one-on-one -on -one with each of the kids as we're able. A few weeks ago, I took my oldest son, Cademan, out to dinner, and afterwards, we went to the playground together. There was a merry-go-round. He said, I want to get on the merry-go-round. You go ahead and spin me. So he got himself set up on the outside of the merry-go-round, hands fastened, feet on the edge, and as I began to spin him, 15, 20 rotations, the centrifugal force started to act on his eight-year-old body. Soon, his feet detached from the merry-go-round. He was hanging on by his hands, and like a cartoon, he was parallel to the ground. Now eventually that centrifugal force got too great 
and he flew off into the mulch and he got up dizzy and he said, that was fantastic. And he said, now it's your turn. I'm going to spin you. Now, I, I thought it was really fun to watch him. I didn't necessarily think it would be fun for me to do that. And so because I've been on a merry-go-round before, I know how this thing works. I don't stand on the edge. What do I do? I move to the center where the centrifugal force is not so great. And I don't really want to let my eyes just travel around the circumference of this circle as he spins me because I'm going to get dizzy. So instead, I just pick out a tree and I keep my eyes focused on the tree and my head pivots as we turn and I don't get busy. I don't get dizzy and I don't fly off. And I told my, I told my wife this story and she goes, wow, you sound like a lot of fun to be with at the playground. <laughs> and these are, my, these are my robot moments. I say, kids, you know what's fun? Prudent decisions and safety. That's what's fun. Here's the point. When I am dizzied and disoriented by hard passages in the Bible, and when tragedy befalls me in life, and I'm struggling with issues in my faith, what I've learned to do is force myself back to the middle, to the steady center, which is Christ himself. When I focus my eyes on a fixed position, the resurrected Christ, and as I do that, my equilibrium returns, and I'm able to start thinking again with clarity. And so I suggest that we think about these things in the correct order of operations. Because I'm convinced of the truth of Jesus at the center, I want to then view the periphery like Jesus viewed the periphery. And when I come across difficult passages in the Old Testament, like 2 Kings 2, which by the way, the Old Testament you may know is the Hebrew scriptures. That is what Jesus would have called the Bible. When Jesus read the Bible on earth, he was reading the Old Testament. When I look at the Old Testament, I want to read it the way he read it. Well, how did Jesus read 2 Kings 2? That's the most salient question before me when I look at this. How did Jesus read this? How did he understand it? And the New Testament gives us some clues. Look at Luke 24, 27. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Moses authored the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, so at the very beginning of the Old Testament, and the prophets, which make up a large chunk of, of the middle and the end of the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. So the books of Moses, the prophets, Psalms, Proverbs, all of the scriptures interpreted the things concerning himself. And you say, wait a minute, the name of Jesus isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament. How could it be about Jesus? It's true that he is never explicitly named in the Old Testament. But what we see here in Luke 24 is Jesus is saying, all of it is about me. And he spent time teaching his disciples how the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, actually pointed to Jesus. Look at John 5, 39. Jesus here interacting with the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders and the academic experts, the lawyers of his day. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But what? It is they that bear witness about me. He says, look, you're spending all this time reading and memorizing and reciting the Hebrew scriptures and all the while you're missing what they're really about. They point to me. 2 Corinthians, or actually John 5, so still verse 46, he says to them, For you believed Moses, and if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Everything, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. If you've read Numbers, I guarantee you've never seen Jesus in Numbers. You read Numbers and you're just like, mm, I think I'm going to give up on my Bible reading plan this year. And what he's saying is, all of it ultimately points to me. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.20, this year the Apostle Paul. He says, for all the promises of God... What does he mean by promises of God? At the very least, he means all of the promises found in the Hebrew scriptures. For all the promises of God, find their yes in him. 
All the promises of God, all the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the apex. The Old Testament is pointing to and ultimately fulfilled in him. 2 Timothy 3.16 here, again, the Apostle Paul writes, all scripture, at the very least, he means the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, all scripture is God-breathed. It is literally breathed out by God. Is it inspired by God? It's delivered by the Spirit of God, and it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. If this is how Jesus and the apostles read the Old Testament, then this is how I want to read the Old Testament. Jesus has satisfied my curiosity about his credentials by defeating death, being in a tomb for three days, and then rising again. When he did that, I say, okay, I trust you. I believe you. The things you said about yourself are true. And so whatever it is that you think, whatever it is that you do, I want to think that, and I want to do that. So back to the principal question. What do we do with 2 Kings 2, this crazy story? What do we do with it? Well, there's a number of things we can do when we come across these kinds of hard passages in the Bible. Um, And I've actually seen a lot of people do a lot of these things. So let me just run through a partial list here. One thing we can do is we can mythologize it. That is to say, we can say that it never actually happened. This is purely a legend that was written by a person who was trying to convey their understanding of the world. And in their primitive view, the way they understood this tragedy that happened by random acts and happenstance, they attributed it to God. This is a myth. It never happened. If it did, they simply misattributed it. That's one thing we can do. But Jesus doesn't treat it that way. Jesus doesn't treat the Old Testament that way. And so if Jesus doesn't treat it that way, I don't want to treat it that way. So I'm not going to mythologize it. I can take a step back from that, and I can simply allegoricalize it. That simply means I can make it symbolic. I can make it metaphorical. We can say that it's figurative. So in other words, okay, it's a story about children being mauled by bears, but they weren't real children and they weren't real bears. Those are simply symbols that point us to another truth. Well, that's possible. The Bible definitely uses symbolism and it definitely uses metaphor. But 2 Kings isn't really the genre of literature that uses metaphor and symbolism. Other books do. Books of poetry certainly do. We see some poetry even in the beginning of Genesis. But 2 Kings isn't that kind of literature. You wouldn't read the Wall Street Journal and say, oh, it's beautiful poetry. What does this symbolize? Nothing. It's just telling you about facts. Um, And so... So if, if that's not the way that this passage reads, and that's not the way then that Jesus would have treated this, then I'm not going to call this symbolic. Another thing we can do is simply to reform God. We can say, okay, look, maybe I accept this actually happened. Maybe the specificity of this passage implies that it actually happened in real time, in real space. And maybe I believe that, in fact, this is the word of God in some sense. But here's the thing. This is the Old Testament God. This is the angry, grumpy, vengeful God. I worship the God of the New Testament, the friendly God, the new and improved God, a God who's been through some PR coaching. He knows how to behave in public now, right? He's, he's softened with his old age. And a lot of people treat the Bible that way. Old Testament, that's someone else's God. That's how he used to be. Those are stories that aren't really as relevant as the New Testament, which is the God that I worship. He looks more like Jesus. But here's the thing. That's not how Jesus treated this. Jesus did not see the Bible that way at all. And that's inconsistent with the internal witness of the Bible. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Eternally the same. James 1.17 says that every good 
and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God does not change from eternity past to eternity future. His character attributes are all the same. One God throughout all eternity. Now we see different revelations. We see different aspects of the character and attributes of God as the biblical narrative unfolds. And so certainly we, being those who exist in history after the New Testament was written, we see more clearly the whole character and plan of God than those folks who were around when Elisha was around did. We can see more, more clearly because we have the benefit of having more data. And it just is a function of when we were born. But it's one God throughout all eternity. So I'm not going to reform God and suggest that maybe it happened, but that's not how God really is anymore. Another option, and this I see a lot, is simply to condemn God. And I see a lot of folks who, who grew up in a kind of evangelical tradition or Protestant tradition, and they've become deeply uncomfortable with the way that politics and religion have merged in our country so that now certain political views and parties are sometimes seen as totally intertwined with the Christian faith. And because the things that are happening don't align with the way they feel, they're starting to really not push back just on politics, but actually on the tradition of faith that they grew up in. And so they've started to, to push back on that stream. And, and, in, and part of that response, uh, by the way, I, I think that's a completely good and valid response to the, uh, the inner meddling of religion and politics. Just, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to cause discomfort here. I know that I'm, I'm starting to, to walk on some sacred ground here with some of you guys for politics. But what I'm saying is that folks have become uncomfortable. And a part of the response, what they've done is said, hey, look, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't really be associated with the way that I grew up seeing the Bible. And this whole business that, that my evangelical teaching taught me that this is the inerrant, inspired word of God, that can't be true because I'm having to doubt everything now. So they start to push back against it. And they come to difficult passages like this. They say, what am I supposed to do with this? The God I worship is a loving, kind God. This was not a loving, kind action. Therefore, either this God can't exist or this passage can't be true. Now, what's dangerous about that is what happens when we start to assess it that way? Who, who gets elevated to the position of God? We do. We become the ultimate arbiters of what's true and right and fair, and that's just not really a position that we are qualified to be in. We don't want to be in that spot. And so we can be tempted to condemn God or condemn the passage if our conception of God and our reading of the passage don't align, but that's not, again, what, what Jesus did with this passage. Okay, well, what's left? What else can we do with this passage? Well, here's, here's an additional option, and this is what I, as a skeptical Christian who wants to behold the beauty of Christ in all of God's word, here, here's where I've landed. I simply choose to believe this passage as Jesus believed it, and then humbly seek to understand it. So I say, Jesus, if you viewed this passage as true and factual and ultimately pointing to you in some way, then I believe it that way too. But God, I don't, I don't understand this. This seems abhorrent to me. This seems horrible to me. This seems violent to me. But I'm not going to reject it. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to call it a myth. I'm just going to choose to believe it the way Jesus did. But God, would you graciously help me to understand it? Would you help me to understand it? Okay, so if, if we decide to land in that place, if that's what we're going to do with this passage or this circumstance, I would suggest that first we're going to have to we're going to have to read this as best we can by understanding the time and place. This passage was not written in 21st century Houston, Texas. 
It was written thousands of years ago in an ancient Near East in a much different culture. And so the modern contextual lens that we read this passage through initially is not going to be, it's not going to give us a correct picture. And so we have to try to contextualize ourselves. Uh, If you've got a study Bible, that's going to be a great place to start. It'll give you some notes on how to understand the time and place. Certainly there are commentaries available in book form or many online. Google can be a great friend in this way. Once we contextualize ourselves, we're, we, we may want to start grappling with the text. Let me give you an example. In verse 23, what we've read here is that this group of people consisted of small boys. Okay, well the word small boys is the way that the ESV translates it. The NIV translates it young boys. The King James says little children. The NASB and the ASV say young lads. So what do we know right away? There isn't unanimity amongst translators as to how the phrase should be translated to English. And so if we say, okay, well, there's not perfect agreement there, then we might want to go a little bit further and even look at, okay, well, what was the original language? And if we looked at it, we would see that here in this passage, there were two Hebrew words used that in our version is translated small boys. In verse 23, it's the word na'ar, and in verse 24, it's the word yaled. And both of these words have a broad lexical range, which means they can The same word can mean different things. So, for an example, if I were to say to you, I hate it when people use the Bible to justify abuse of children. And I hate it when my pizza gets cold. Now, you know that even though I've used the same word in the same tone, that those two uses of hate mean radically different things. They don't have the same meaning. And just so here, the words na'ar and yala, they could mean something as young as single digits, six, seven, eight, nine, or it could mean someone as old as 27, 28, 29. In Genesis 44, uh, 20, in fact, we see that Joseph's brother Benjamin is described by this word, Yaled, and he is 28, 29 years old in that passage. So it has a broad lexical range. Now, let me just kind of run you through something here, an exercise that helps us get our, our minds around how to read the Bible. Okay, so what if I showed you this picture, and I said, okay, here's a group of young children, All right, these are a couple of my kids and a niece. What if I said, okay, here is your group of mockers and this is what they looked like and this was their behavior and you said, smile for the camera and they were just mocking you and doing tongue out. Now, if this is what you picture when you read this passage, how do you feel about it? Probably not good, right? This seems unjust, unfair, disproportionate. Okay, well, what if they were a bit older? What if this isn't what Yaled was pointing to? What if they're a little bit older still? Here's a couple other of my kids with a group of friends, and I say, smile for the camera, and look at him, just so disrespectful, just sticking out tongues and being silly. What if this is what the mockers looked like? Do you feel any different about the passage? Maybe, maybe not. What if the kids are a bit older still? What if Yolette actually was pointing to something like this? These kids are 16, 17, 18. Are these Boy Scouts? No. These are Hitler youth from the mid-1940s who are preparing to wage a continental war to support the ideology of racism and fascism? What if this was the kind of group that surrounded Elisha the prophet? Do we feel differently about the passage now? What if it was yet an older group still, and the group looks something more like this, a group of 28, 29, 30-year-olds who marched in Charlottesville, Virginia last year beneath the light of tiki torches, carrying Nazi and Confederate flags? What about now? How do we feel about the passage now? Perhaps, depending on what we picture in that group, we feel either that God was unjust for doing this thing or perhaps we start cheering for the bears because what we picture determines how we feel, right? And we can't just read small boys and automatically know exactly what that group looked like. Here's what I can tell you for sure. 
the four pictures I just showed you consisted of all white people and one Latino. I can tell you that none of the people around Elisha were white or Latino. So whatever the group looked like, it didn't look like any of those people. But the point here is that we imagine something when we read the passage and what we imagine impacts how we feel and what we think about the passage. And so if we allow ourselves to open up a little bit, contextualize, and realize that what we pictured at first might not be actually what it's saying, it gives us space to understand a little bit more. And when we do that, we're not just reading the text, the text is reading us. Right? Because depending on the color of your skin and where you're from and your own preconceptions and your own prejudices, you may feel differently depending on what kind of group you imagine. And so we have to kind of open up a little bit to the passage. What about bald head in verse 23? Going up, you bald head. Now in America, or at least to my reading, that seems like a fairly innocuous kind of insult. Like teasing someone about their receding hairline is just not that serious, right? Maybe a little disrespectful, but certainly not the kind of thing that would justify sending bears on them, right? But here's the thing. I live in the U.S. I live in a country that enshrined the freedom of speech into the very first amendment of my constitution, I live in a country that was founded on a kind of subversiveness towards authority that makes that not seem so bad to me. But this passage didn't happen in the United States. And in the culture that this happened in, it's an honor culture. So they would hear that insult in a much different way. So even if the Yaled, the young boys, even if they were only making a comment about his physical appearance and it wasn't something deeper about his status as a prophet, which it might have been, the, the, the readers of the time would have heard this differently. We had a friend in Turkey uh, who lived in Turkey for a number of years, about a decade ago, and she had her purse snatched in a market, in a crowded market. And when she went to the country and received kind of cultural training about how to operate in this culture, she was taught that, hey, if something like that happens, what you do is you point at the person and yell, shame, shame, shame. And so that's what she did. Now, if you're in the, if you're in the mall here and someone grabs your purse and you point and yell, shame, I mean, that makes no sense, right? No, no one's going to know what to do. That doesn't matter to anyone because we live in a, a very free speech kind of country. That's not how we would respond here. So purely the geographic difference, even modernly, is huge. What about the word tore in verse 24? It says the bears came out and tore 42 of you. Some translations say mauled. What do you infer from that word? When you read that, what do you think about? When I read it, I first inferred or assumed that 42 youth had been killed. I just imagined bodies everywhere. And it might mean that, but if we read back to 1 Kings in chapter 13 and 20, we would find two similar attacks that are recorded by wild animals. In those cases, they were lions. But in both of those passage, uh, passages, it specifies that the attacks resulted in fatalities. This passage doesn't provide that fact. It doesn't say the resulted in fatalities. So might it be actually, or actually a more reasonable inference that the attack, though brutal, wasn't fatal? See, again, we, we read the text at first with a certain set of assumptions, and as we dig into those, we see that the passage might mean something different than, than we first thought. Now, I go into that just to, to show how context matters and how the passage in the English to our modern eyes might be different than what it was saying. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to read the Bible. You don't have to have a seminary degree. I didn't go to seminary. I don't have a degree. Um, I just, I rely on pastors at our church to help guide me. I look to books. I use Google. And, and so you, you have it at your fingertips to dig into that stuff if you want to, and it will help you understand the Bible more. But you don't have to have that stuff. You don't have to look at the Hebrew to, to read the Bible, certainly. Because the question still remains, what do we do with this text in light of Jesus? How did Jesus read it? What did he think about it? 
Okay, so I want to make an argument for you here. I, don't, I want to present that through the eyes of a skeptic who wants to behold the beauty of Christ, recognizing that in, in, in every part of the Old Testament, in some way, it is pointing me to Jesus. And so I ask the question, is this pointing me to Jesus? Is Christ revealed in this passage somehow? Or is this simply revealing a different aspect of God's character, perhaps? How would Jesus read this? So I want to look at the Gospels, and I want to I submit to you an argument that this passage actually reveals more of Christ than I understood initially. So look with me at Matthew 27, 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, if you looked at a Bible dictionary or went to Israel uh, or looked at footnotes maybe in your study Bible, you would see that Golgotha is actually a hill. So from Jesus to get from where he started to where he ended, he had to ascend a hill, right? So we see here the first detail. He is ascending a hill, verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him. What do we see? He's in a crowd. He's surrounded by a bunch of people who are mocking him, verse 42. They say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. And the robbers who were crucified with him, verse 44, also reviled him in the same way. Jesus ascending a hill, going up, surrounded by a crowd who's mocking him for his status as a prophet and more than a prophet. Do you see the parallelism to the passage in 2 Kings? Elisha, prophet of God, ascending a hill. In fact, going from Jericho to Bethel, which is about a roughly 10-mile journey, the elevation change is about 3,500 feet. So he is literally going up a hill, Moreover, Elisha, the prophet, was preceded by Elijah. Elijah, who ascended to heaven. So when the youth are saying, go on up, they may be saying, literally, go on up the hill. Or they may be referring to the fact that Elisha was proclaiming himself to be a prophet in the line of Elijah. And they're saying metaphorically, go on up, like Elijah did, like he ascended. And so Jesus now, ascending a hill, surrounded by a crowd of mockers. Now, at this point in the story, Elisha, recall, calls down a curse from heaven And the judgment of God is released on the crowd in the form of bears. And here we see Jesus, Luke 23, 34. We see Jesus' response. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And then in verse 43, after one of the thieves who had previously been mocking Jesus apparently repents and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Elisha evoked a curse that destroyed the crowd. Jesus absorbed a curse that saved the crowd. Elisha calls down a curse on the mockers. Jesus becomes a curse for the mockers. Elisha calls out to God and says, judge them for what they do. Jesus calls out to God and says, forgive them for what they do. Jesus is the truer and better Elisha. He's not the truer and better Elisha because he reveals to us the new and improved God, the updated God, but rather simply because he reveals to us the fullness of God. Elisha revealed to us a true and valid component of God's character. And Jesus reveals to us the fullness of God's character. The other thing is when we read this story initially, most of us are tempted to read the story from the perspective of Elijah. We're the prophet. We're the person of God. And we're looking down the hill and we see these bears attacking a group of yeled, of these small boys, and we go, whoa, that seems really, really disproportionate. Or maybe we see ourselves as a, as a third-party bystander and we're, we're watching this happen and we see the bears attack the youth and we go, oh, that is horrible. But you know what? Actually, we're not Elisha in the story. And we're not a third-party bystander in the story. We're the crowd. 
We're the mockers. This is what the New Testament teaches, that all of us have sinned. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us are actually the crowd. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The world can look bleak through the eyes of a skeptic, and I know that because I've seen it that way. But in the same way, when we stand in the center and we focus our skeptical eyes on a fixed position, we can behold the beauty of Christ, even in the hard passages of the Bible, even in the heartbreaking realities of our world. I said initially that 2 Kings 2 struck me as unreasonable, unfair, and unjust, and made me say, my God, why would you do that? And then I read the gospel account, and I say, that seems unreasonable, unfair, and unjust. My God, why would you do that? And the response is, because you needed it, and because I love you. Instead of reading 2 Kings 2, and it causing me to shake my fist at God in anger, or giving up because I don't understand, or deciding that it can't be true because I don't like the way it reads, when viewed through the prism of the gospel, I'm able to see that passage, and instead of shaking my fist in anger, it caused me to fall to my knees in repentance and worship. That's what the Bible is meant to do for us. We take our initial disposition towards God, and we read the pages of Holy Scripture, and it causes us to see that we're part of the crowd. We've rebelled. We need grace and forgiveness because aside from the grace and forgiveness of Jesus becoming a curse for us, you know where we're left? We're left in the position of the crowd and God's judgment is aimed at us. That is an unpopular opinion. Seems so uncouth, so unmodern, and yet it's what the scripture says and it's what Jesus affirms. And so I simply say, Jesus, I'm gonna read this the way you read it. I believe you and I trust your interpretation. Would you help me to understand it? And as he does, it causes me to repent and it causes me to worship. And my hope is that for you this morning, if you're a skeptic like I am, if you're a doubter, if you're an inquirer, um, or even if you're a person of deep faith who's not shaken by 2 Kings 2, uh, and yet sometimes you encounter tragedy in life and you wonder what is going on here, I hope that being able to view life and the scriptures through the prism of Christ and the glory of the gospel will imbue you with faith and cause you in great joy to be able to worship God and freedom. Uh, let me pray for us as we close. God, this morning, uh, I at least confess that um, I'm that guy in Mark 9 who says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Uh, Father, I want to have stronger faith in you. I want to be less dependent upon my own intellect. I want to trust in you deeply and for everything. So God, would you help me with that today? Would you make me a man of faith? And God, I would say that together as a church, we repent and we say, God, we acknowledge that we are part of the crowd. We are mockers. We, are, uh, we, we had been in rebellion against you. And God, thank you that out of your great love for us, you've pursued us all the way to the cross. Jesus, that you actually became a curse for us. Everyone who's hanged on a tree is a curse. And so God, uh, Jesus, thank you for taking that curse for us that we could find freedom and forgiveness in you, have fellowship with the Father. If you're here this morning and you've not placed your trust in Christ, you've not received the free gift of grace that Christ has secured for you, I would encourage you this morning to make that your prayer. 
And Father, as we worship and as we go out from here, we want to honor you in all that we do. So would you empower us by your spirit? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.